Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. Sin that's not eradicated always returns. It doesn't bail them out from suffering for what they've done. of us uh, here, we, we've grown up in church. Um, several of you have been in church your whole lives. Some of you have, some of you got saved at really young ages. Um, I was seven. And uh, the interesting thing that I have realized only recently is how much, um, how much that, that act of getting saved, of, of accepting Jesus and what he's done for you is about this reality that God is going to do the single most impossible thing He can do for you, right? So, so think about it like this. We've, we've talked about this before, but if, if God is perfect and good, then He can't be around any level of bad, like even the smallest level. We can't call Him perfectly good if He accepts any kind of sin, any kind of evil. So it's, it's actually impossible. It's completely impossible that you would be able to be saved, to, to go to heaven, to be in communion with a perfect God. It's impossible. And yet we believe that what Jesus did on the cross, it, it does that. It's the only place in any religion, in any uh, story, in any system, in any structure where justice and mercy are reconciled together. That only happens on the cross. That doesn't happen anywhere else. So we believe that this absolutely impossible thing happened. And again, because some of us believe this from such an early age and have grown up in church being told that that's the truth, the next thing that I, I find interesting about this is how we believe on God to do this absolutely impossible thing, and then we don't believe that God can handle the day in and the day out. We stress about bills. We stress about grades. We stress about relationships. We think we have to handle everything else. Like, thanks God for doing the hardest possible thing. I got the rest. Or thanks God for doing the hardest possible thing, but you probably can't handle this much smaller thing. And then somehow that becomes our job. I've got to work this out. I have, to, I have to make the right moves. I have to think through the situation. And, and, and somehow now the ball's in my court to fix whatever's going on. But that's exactly the opposite of the message of the gospel. And God doesn't just save us in eternity. He saves us right now. And he loves us so much that he can't help but express that love right now. Now, it's hard to see sometimes because that love doesn't necessarily match what, what we expect, but if you're parenting a small child and that small child wants to eat cake all the time, you telling that small child, no, you can't eat cake three days or three uh, meals a day for, all, for a whole week, it, to the child, that's like, you don't even love me. You won't let me eat cake anytime I want. But you know that that's not good for the child. 
right? That's the same thing is that God is always looking out for us. And yet we seem to think that like he, he really doesn't have all those details worked out. He's not really in them. The interesting thing is that that then what we see, if you want to look at your life, let me ask you this question. Are you more Christ-like today than you were a year ago? Or have you gone the opposite direction? Because I spent a lot of time going the opposite direction. And what I realized is that you, you get stuck in what we call a sin cycle. And a sin cycle is this place where all of a sudden um, I do this thing and it's contrary to my Christian values and then I feel just devastated and I feel ashamed and I say, oh God, I'm never going to do that again. And it's like a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of, of sometimes hours even before you're right back in it. You're doing the exact same thing that you set down. Well, the interesting thing is that this, this uh, it has two different implications depending on what your, what your status is in eternity. If you are positionally right with God, if you're a Christian, then that is the fight for usefulness or uselessness. Right? Are you participating in what God has for your life? Are you living to His glory in a way that's going to fulfill you and build you up and, and give you essentially the meaning of life in your day in and day out? Or are you useless? Are you hampered and hindered from doing the things God wants you to do? And if you're a non-Christian, the stakes are even higher because now it's not about usefulness, it's about life and death. That sin cycle is pinning you into a slavery that wants to kill you. So today, we're going to start a series, uh, I'm calling it Kingless. We're going to be in the book of Judges. And we're going to spend probably 10 or 11 weeks in Judges. Um, I haven't exactly figured out how to split up Gideon yet, so I can't give you an exact number of weeks. But, but we're, going to, we're going to do this series in Judges called Kingless. Uh, and so today, I want to start, we're going to be in uh, chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 3, and I want to start by giving you some clarifying information about Judges so you can un understand where this entire series is headed. Uh, judges was written uh, about a really dark age in Israel's history, a time period where there was, uh, you could call it almost their Wild West or their, their just their medieval times. It was kind of a, a lawless and unstructured time period that Israel was uh, was walking through. Now, the interesting thing is it starts off promising because what happens right before Judges is the book of Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They, they go on this conquest. They begin to destroy the peoples that God has uh, told them to remove from the land, and they see success. And even at the beginning of Judges, they see that same success. So it starts off very promising. They've begun to divide the land, to receive their promise from God and their inheritance. So at the end of Joshua, in the beginning of Judges, Joshua dies, and Israel is on a win streak. But then there's a problem. Israel is leaderless. They're kingless. They don't have that one person, because when they came out of Egypt, they had Moses. And then, after Moses passed away, it immediately became Joshua. Well, now Joshua passes away, and what we're going to see is that they, they don't know who, who's supposed to take over. They don't have a representative of God to them at this point. 
we need to understand the purpose of the book of Judges. The first thing I want to point out to you guys is that uh, ancient Near Eastern and Israelite uh, history is not done the way that we do history, right? So when we tell, when we talk about history, we do it in a linear fashion. We go, okay, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's not the way that that the Bible is written in the Old Testament. The Bible is written in the Old Testament. Picture a diamond. And a diamond, to get the full understanding of a diamond, you have to look at it from different angles. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is happening chronologically in order. It just means, well, we're going to look at it from this aspect. And we're going to talk about all the angles and all the things we see. And then we're going to twist it. And we're going to look at it from a different angle. And we're going to get a whole new picture because we're looking at different angles. Right? And so that helps when we understand what's happening here. The book of Judges happens over 300 to 350-ish years of time. And the interesting thing is a lot of the stories happen simultaneously. Several of the judges are in different places doing things in overlapping time periods. And even um, the, the capstone of the book, the last couple chapters, which are... Um, are devastating. They're depraved moments in Israel's history. Um, those probably happened very early in the period. Well, well, why are they at the end of the book? Because the writer wasn't intending to give you a linear view of their history. He was making a point. He was showing you the depravity, and the best way he knew how to show you that depravity was to put those stories at the very end, so that's what you take away, right? And he's, he's going to make a singular point. Israel needs a king. They need a leader. They need somebody to take over. Um, they, they think that Samuel wrote this book. Um, it was probably compiled around the beginning or middle uh, time of the, the beginning of the monarchy as David and, and, Saul, and Solomon are kings. Um, but here's, here's the interesting thing. In Scripture, there's always kind of two layers. There's... Um, like when we look at prophecy, there's always kind of this immediate fulfillment of prophecy or this this uh, immediate application. And then there's this long running kind of eternal perspective version, right? So if you look at a lot of the stuff that's uh, especially prophecy that's said in the Old Testament, they saw it in their day when it was written and it usually pointed them to Jesus. Well, the exact same thing is true of the book of Judges. The book of Judges the author, technically, again, technically it's anonymous, but they think it was Samuel. And, and the argument being made is both we need a king, which ends up being Saul and then David, and we need a king. We need a righteous king, a perfect king. We need a leader. Right? And the interesting thing is we call this book Judges, and we see all these characters that are going to get raised up as judges. But the interesting message behind the book of Judges is there's only one true judge. And he is God. There's only one true leader, and he is God. There's only one true king, and he is God. So when you look at the book of Judges, uh, if you are told the stories without getting into the, the nitty-gritty of what happened, it's easy to think this is kind of like a, a book of Israelite heroes. But as you read the book of Judges, it becomes increasingly clear that these are not um, people that we should be looking up to. They are, they are doing the best they can, and God is using them in the moment, and yet they are filled with sin and depravity, 
and they and and again, even though some of them are lifted up as uh, in the New Testament as these heroes of faith who saw eternity, what did they do in the moment? They made decisions in the moment that said, "I've got to handle this. I've got to fix it. I can only God doesn't have this part of it, and it always messed it up." And we see the same thing. I mean, just so you see the theme here that's common. Abraham does the same thing. Abraham is told, we're told over and over and over again that he is, he was made righteous by faith, that he is the father of faith, that he was this great man. Go read the actual stories of Abraham's travel. It is like disobedient moment after disobedient moment. He's kind of a failure, but he's a failure, and that's actually the point. He needs a king, he needs God. And Abraham always, in his, in his spirit, still believed that, that God was being faithful, still trusted God, still walked with God. He just did it imperfectly as all humans do, as we all do. So we're going to see that unfold in the book of Judges. We're also going to see this sin cycle process. The sin cycle process, and, and here's the interesting thing. Sin doesn't coast at like a just like a set level. You're either growing towards Christ likeness or you're falling into sin's hold and slavery to it. There's no just like, well, I'll just keep my sin like, you know, right here. I only sin on Friday nights. Like the rest of the week, I'll do what Jesus wants me to do. It doesn't work like that. Sin if you if you let sin uh, remain in your life, if you let sin take root in your life, if you let sin return to your life, it will continually drag you away from Jesus. I've called this specific message Sin Cycles because we're going to see uh, the entire book of Judges outlined for us in these first three chapters. The, the, the author's going to say, this is what's about to happen for the whole book over and over and over again. So turn with me uh, to Judges chapter 1, and we're going to see sin's roots, starting in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired to the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have handed the land over to him. Then Judah said to his brother Simeon, Go up with me into the territory allotted me, and let's fight the Canaanites. And I, in turn, will go, will go uh, with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord handed over to them the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. Okay, so we, we get told Joshua has died, and Judah accepts the role that it's already been told it will fulfill for all time as the leader of the nation. The people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, is supposed to be the leader. And they begin to carry on in the success that we've already seen. Joshua had the conquest going strong. They have actually, at this point, broken the backbone of the people in the land. I mean, it's, it's mop up the rest time. There's, there's a resistance in the land still, but they have defeated the core, and they've shown themselves to be capable and competent under under their command from God to win this land. The people are not going to stand in their way much longer. 
uh, five, uh, verse 5 through 20 continues this success. We, we see this conquest spreading out across the land as the different tribes are spreading out to their allotted territories and continuing to, to clean out the groups. But then, as we get to verse 21, the tone changes a little bit. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Okay, all of a sudden... The tone changes. Because instead of obeying God and driving these people out of the land completely, we see a little foothold. We see a group that's allowed to remain, that's allowed to still be rooted in the land that isn't God's people, that doesn't belong there. Jump with me to uh, verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shin and its villages, or uh, Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of uh, Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in this land. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer uh, among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of uh, Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or, the, or of Alab or of, sorry, these names are challenging here, um, Achzib, Helba, Aphik, or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor to them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, so they did not allow them to come down uh, to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living on Mount Heres in Ajalon and Shalbim. Uh, but when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim uh, from Selah and upward. Okay, what happened? They, they quit. They were on a win streak. They were crushing their enemies and driving them out. And then they got lazy. They said, this is good enough. We've, we've pretty much won. We're the rulers in the land. But God didn't tell them, be in charge. God told them to destroy, to push out everybody in the land. Was the conquest of Israel a hard thing? Absolutely. They fought tons of battles. But do you know what's going to be harder as we get through this series? The consequences of letting sin remain close to them. Stay rooted in the land. And just in case you're wondering, if you're not uh, particularly uh, savvy with this part of Old Testament history, God gave the people, the Canaanites, decades, generations to repent, to turn away from their sin. God was patient with them over and over again. And the Canaanites, the main, one of the main reasons given for why they have to be pushed out of the land is because they are child, a child-sacrificing culture. So think about this. Not only 
are they just depraved in and of themselves? Are they living in this sinful place where they they uh, sacrifice children to their gods? But God is ultimately concerned that His people don't pick up that practice. That His people don't live in such co- uh, close proximity to sin that they begin to act like it. You ever you ever been told uh, maybe your freshman year of college or when you got a new job you 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 are who you hang out with? That is completely true. That's why we tell you, you have to spend time in your word every day being with God. Because if you are with God, you'll start to act like Him. But if you go to school your freshman year or sophomore year and all your friends are a negative influence on you, guess what you're going to behave like? You're going to behave like them. If none of your friends go to church and all your friends go to the bars, and all your friends love getting uh, getting as drunk as they can get every Friday and Saturday night, chances are you'll begin to behave more like them. Now, this does not mean that we just separate, like, oh, can't be near anybody, I gotta hide. No, but it does mean that we, we draw boundaries and we say, I have to behave the way Christ wants me to ha- behave and be on, on a, I need to be, lifted up by God to be shown to be set apart as a testimony to who he is, right? The whole point is the people of Israel are different than all the cultures around them. They are supposed to drive out these evil, simple people partially so they don't behave like them and to continue to be this testimony of who God is in the whole world. The Israelites are different. But now, what do they do? They they defeated the the. They defeated the peoples, and then they put them to work. They made them forced labor. They were in charge, right? They just said, okay, well, we'll just, you know it'd be better. I know God said to destroy them, but you know it'd be better? Like, how often do we do that? Like, you read the Bible, and you can get every answer to life. I'm, I'm not kidding. And you want to sit down? I will show you that every answer is in here. And we can figure out exactly the way we're supposed to be living. And But what happens is, instead of taking this, and applying it directly to what we're going through. Instead, we look at a situation and we go, that's great, but you know it'd be better? I've, I've got a great idea. And that's exactly what they did. God said, do X, and they said, yeah, oh, I see the merit, but you know it'd be better? And it, it's not gonna work out. And that's what we're gonna see in the, in the entire book of Judges. So they're left leaderless, and they do what we all do, essentially, is that they, they fail. They, they make the natural mistakes to, to go away from God, from what God has for them. Now, why didn't God just give them a leader? Like, why didn't God, like, they had Moses, then they had Joshua. Why didn't God just give them somebody else to be in charge? First of all, he was in charge. God was in charge. They could still hear from him. They still knew what he wanted. They didn't need somebody to tell them what God was already telling them. And then on top of that, when we fail, which we always will, and we have no hope to not fail, the whole point of God letting that occur in our lives is to turn us back to him. It's to say, do you see what what it is when you are in charge? Like, does bad stuff happen to me when I'm following Jesus? Sure it does, because we live in a broken world. But am I 
failing? Am I out of joy? Am I out of provision when that bad stuff is happening to me if I'm following Jesus? No. You know when bad stuff happens to me and it's my fault and it's my cause? is when I took the reins. I never have once ever have obeyed Jesus and then the outcome has been so horrible that I went, really? This is what you had? If I obey Jesus, even when the bad things happen, I'm able to go, wow, look at what God did in this. Look at what God is doing in my life and in my spirit. Look at the way God's providing in this trial. Right? The only time I go, wow, this is an absolute disaster, is when I go, wow, look at the mess I've made. That's great. I was in charge for too long. Somebody left the room and I was unsupervised. It's not a good place. That's what's happening with Israel right now. But the, the idea is that they would repent. So then we've seen that's sin's roots. That's the start of sin's roots in this sin cycle. So the next thing we see is sin, sin remains. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you to land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is, the, what is this thing that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from you, but they will become like thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people raised their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochum, and there they sacrificed. Uh, there they sacrificed to the Lord. Okay. So we see the angel of the Lord show up. Now, um, the angel of the Lord. There's a lot of. I'm not going to get super into this right now, um, but. The angel of the Lord, there's several theories about who the angel of the Lord is. The most commonly accepted is that this is a, an appearance of Jesus Christ um, in, the, in the Old Testament, that he is coming uh, in, a, in a personal way and dealing with something in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord shows up a number of times in the Old Testament. It's also clearly different than that same uh, English phrase in the New Testament. The angel of the Lord does not mean the same thing when we get to the New Testament. Um, that's one very common theory. Another Another common theory is um, that this is a representative of God, and why, and then you see the angel of the Lord a lot of times talks in first person, but this has, um, a, again, a cultural explanation for the times. If I was a king and I sent a messenger to you to speak to you, that messenger would speak as my voice. That messenger wouldn't come to you and say, the king said, he would say, I'm saying, because he had my authority with him. That's how a king sent out a messenger in that time period. So it could just be a messenger that has been given in that moment the authority of God. I read this week a new uh, theory I've heard, but I've never seen it explained this well, that said if the whole um, Old Testament is this type and object lesson about who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish, the angel of the Lord is no different. The angel of the Lord is... God, a manifestation of God that is a type of Christ. It is not necessarily the Son in the Godhead, but it is merely um, showing us that God is personal, that God is involved, that God will come deal with things in, in, a, in an individual way, right? Have you ever uh, met anybody who just believed, yeah, you know, there's a God, but he's just kind of like, I don't know, out there. He's just like, he created things. He's not worried about my life. And the angel of the Lord is, is a theology that says, no, God is taking a personal interest in what's going on to the point where he has come 
to, to deal with it himself, right? So here's the point, though. It doesn't matter between those three theories. The lesson is the same. We serve a personal God who takes a personal interest and comes in a moment to deal with the details. Notice that God's answer in this situation is, you know, it'll kind of pan out because I got you in heaven, so just whenever you die, see you then. Like, that's not it. He's dealing with this situation right now in their lives. And this, this angel Lord, in this moment, God is going to make, make to them three claims of his authority and his faithfulness. He says, I delivered you from Egypt. He's saying, I bought you. You're mine. I've already paid a price to, to have you. I bought you back from, from slavery, and I brought you out of it. You're mine. He says, I was the God of, the, of your forefathers. Your ancestors worshipped me. I was their God, which means that you wouldn't be here if I hadn't been their God. And then the third one is he says, I made a covenant with you. And even if you're faithless, I'm faithful. So he's making these three claims and he's saying, I have all the authority here. I'm the faithful one. And you have not held up your end. You haven't done what I've commanded you to do. I've done everything. And then he says, that these people that you've left, there'll be thorns in your side. So we see in James that sin is called uh, something that hooks us and ensnares us. Anyone, any fishers in the room? Big time fishers? Couple? Got a couple? You uh, Hooks have barbs on them, right? It makes it so the fish can't bite into it, right? Get it hooked and then just slide it back out because it's barbed and it's going to hook on the other side. We do the same thing with with arrows sometimes. The point is, sin, it, it doesn't just slide right back out. It's not just a, well, I'll just sin for a little bit, but, th- but then I, when I'm not interested, I'll move on. Sin hooks us, and it gets caught in our side, and the barbs don't come out easily. And when they do come out, guess what? It's painful. It has consequences. It takes flesh with it. The Apostle Paul, he said that he had a thorn in his flesh, something that wouldn't go away. This could have been physical, could have been a sin, could have just been a thought. But he had something that he couldn't get out. It was hooked, and it wouldn't leave, and he begged God to get rid of it. And what did God tell him? My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. Listen, what we're seeing here is that the sin that has taken root in Israel's, in Israel's land, it's now going to remain. It's not going to leave. But this doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. It doesn't mean that God is not, being, is not upholding His end of the bargain. They're suffering the consequences of the hooks that they've allowed to attach But they are not abandoned, they are not forgotten, because God's grace is still enough. And then we see that they are are sorry. Now, it's hard to tell from the text if they are truly repentant or if they're just remorseful. Like the difference between I'm sorry I did it and I'm sorry I got caught. But... 
one of the things that we're going to see is that Israel fails over and over again to pass on the testimony of what God's done in their life to the next generation. So even if one generation is repentant and turns towards God, there's, there's no guarantees moving forward for the next generation. They'll fall right off the bandwagon. The church, uh, ask yourself this, all the churches, the, the major churches that we see in the New Testament, where are they? Most of them are gone. Now, so, there's various reasons for that, but some of that is because people forgot to continue to pass on what God had done to testify to His faithfulness. We're never more than one generation away from not being here. If you forget to pass on what God has done in your life, how will your kids know? And even more, how will their kids know? If you let sin take root, it will remain. That's why we're told to run the race, to finish the fight. What happened here is that Israel, they, they kind of got it under control, and they said, you know, we'll just keep this much sin. We've got it from here. We can ease off. We're in the rest now. You can't do that with sin. You can't just put a little bit of it, a little bit of it in, a, in a back closet. So I always talk to you guys about billboard sins and back pocket sins. What Israel did here is that they got rid of their billboard sin. They were in charge. They had conquered the land. And yet they had some things that they were like, you know, but they're like slaves. We don't need to kill them. They justified it. And what's going to happen? That is going to be the cause of all new sins, all new shames. It's going to change their culture. It's going to steal them from God. Then we see that sin returns. Look in verse 6 of chapter 2. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went, each one to his inheritance, to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, uh, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation uh, also was, uh, was gathered to their fathers, and another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. Okay. Why are we talking about Joshua again? We're, we're turning the diamond. We're looking at another angle. See, the first time we looked at Joshua's death, we saw a bunch of events that followed. Now, we're going to look at theology. We're going to look at the fact that Joshua died and what happened. A new generation has risen up that does not know the Lord. That is not, um, is not going to be faithful. And what happens? Because of the failure to pass on the testimony, the sin cycle is going to start with this generation. Look at uh, verse 12. I'm sorry, start in verse 11. Uh, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, and uh, the God their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. So they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. 
Then the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he handed them over to plunderers, and they plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand against their enemies. Whenever they, uh, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the um, for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and just as the Lord had sworn to them. So they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they committed infidelity with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, and they did and they uh, did not do the same as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judges and saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who tormented and oppressed them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back to act more corruptly than their fathers in, the, uh, in following other gods to serve, to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their obstinate ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has violated my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I in turn will no longer drive out from them the nations which Joshua left when he died. God first repeats his claims. I was the God of the patriarchs. I delivered you from Egypt. And we see all the way down in verse 20 another reference to, And we have a covenant. We made a promise. But this sin cycle continues. You see, they, they cry out to God when they're oppressed, which is why God lets us face trials, to cry out to Him, to turn back to Him. And then He answers them because He loves them so much. They get a judge who protects them and defends them against their oppressors. And then, what do they do? They turn back to sin. They turn back to the very things that oppressed them in the first place. And then God, because he loves them, lets them face the consequences of their sin to turn them back. And we just have this sin cycle. And here's the thing. The sin cycle, it, it mentions in there that they did worse than their fathers. So every time this sin cycle goes around, they get further and further away from God. They get further and further into depravity. Why? Because they need a king. They need a savior. They need somebody to lead them towards uh, holiness, what we in the New Testament call Christ-likeness. And instead, they, they get temporarily out of their bad situation and we go, wow, thanks God for handling that one. And then they go right back to the problem and they're even worse the next time. They provoke God to anger. Listen, we've, you've heard this phrase, we serve a jealous God. That has been tainted by the way we use jealousy in, like, middle school relationships. <laughs> but hear me out. That word actually means impassioned. The idea is this. God loves you so much that when you're under threat, it angers him. He cares for you so much that he will not let you just be taken hostage by your sin and by your shame. He knows that the best thing for you is a healthy relationship with himself. So he's not just going to let you go lightly. That's what it means to serve a jealous God, that God was provoked to anger. And then here's the other thing. What we see here is God's reputation on display. We see God's reputation on display in discipline and consequences. Let me ask you this. 
if God just blessed us in the midst of our rebellion to him, how would that testify anything to the world? It wouldn't. It wouldn't show them that they need that they need something different, that God is different, that we serve someone different. If we could just do whatever we wanted and God was just like, well, you know, I love them, so I'll just keep giving them stuff, it, it would show the world that this doesn't matter. It's not different. There's no testimony there. And God's reputation is so important because it draws people to salvation and to eternity that he's not just going to let you run around in sin without consequences. So God's reputation is why the Israelites had to face consequences. And those consequences, again, they drive us back to God, back to safety. If I'm sinful, I'm not holy. I'm not set apart. And if I'm not holy and I'm not set apart, I'm not a testimony. I can't point people to Jesus. Sin is not sin that's not eradicated always returns. It's only gone when we have humility and repentance. It takes humility to repent. This essentially comes down to what, what we see in confession in the Psalms from David. He says, uh, my ways are sinful and your ways are the only good thing and your ways are the only way to heaven. Right? I always point to Romans 10, 9, and 10. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, that statement is twofold. That statement is to say, God, I can't be Lord, and I'm not Lord, and my ways will always take me away from what's good and true and holy and eternal. But yours are good. Yours are perfect. Yours are holy. Again, this is the life and death for a non-Christian versus useful and useless for a Christian. That's what the sin cycle is doing. The people of Israel were not being who God had intended them to be in the book of Judges. And then we see God's reputation on display in a different way, in deliverance. God's reputation is on display in this way. Uh, there's a moment when the Israelites are uh, they're, they're, they're near Mount Sinai. They're moving. They've gotten out of Egypt. Moses is leading them. And God goes to Moses because the people the people are rebelling and they're idol worshiping. And he says, that's it. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start over with you. It's just going to be Moses now. Moses is going to have the next nation of Israel. And Moses says, God, if you do that, all the peoples are going to look and say their God wasn't powerful enough to bring them to what he had promised them he would bring them to. He couldn't do it. See, God's reputation is on the line when it comes to deliverance. This is why you can't lose your salvation. Because if you lose your salvation, then God wasn't powerful enough to save you in the moment that you received it forever. It doesn't work like that. As soon as He pays the price and makes the covenant with you, it's settled. He has you forever because of His name. Not because you're so special. You are special. God sees you with value. But the reason that he saves you for eternity is because of his name. Because he receives the glory. Because he deserves that glory. So God, in his deliverance, even as he's letting the people 
suffer the consequences for the sin that they've let root and remain is to raise up these judges to deliver them, to save them. Keep in mind the, the line here, right? God doesn't just God doesn't raise up the judge to save them from all the consequences. He doesn't bail them out from suffering for what they've done. He saves them from annihilation. He saves them in accordance with his promise. He saves them on behalf of the covenant he's made with them because he is faithful. And the judges, by the way, they're still part of the problem. This is the point. We need a king. We need a righteous, perfect, and holy king in our lives. The judges don't fix the problem. They actually become part of the problem. We're going to see every single judge we talk about is horrible. They are all sin-filled people. And here's the reality. So are you. The reality is that you have no hope apart from having a king in your life. If you don't have the righteous king, if you don't have Jesus, if you're not following him, you are also going to be depraved. You are also going to get stuck in sin cycles. You are also going to wander away from Jesus, wander away from God. You're not going to be more Christ-like tomorrow or the next day. You need this same king because you have the same inability to do any better. Look in verse 22. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord or walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed the nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not hand them over to Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it previously. These nations are the five governors of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon uh, from Mount Baal Hermon to uh, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were left to test Israel by them to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their father through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for, the, uh, for themselves as wives and, wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Do you see what's happening? The end of that is they've already started to integrate. They've already started to disobey the next thing that God told them not to do, and they've already started to intermarry with these people. By the way, this has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with faith. They're intermarrying with people of an opposing faith and culture who worship gods that oppose their God. The point of judges goes against the grain for Americans. We're taught about rugged individualism. You know where rugged individualism gets you? Slavery to sin. Every time. You need, at the very least one other person which is Jesus and then after that you still need the community of believers you still need the rest of the Godhead and everybody around you that has found that same faith you can't do this on your own we need structure we need authority do you know when I'm free I'm free when I'm firmly set in the authority structure that God has for my life do you know when I'm not free? When I'm outside of that, 
because that's when I'm enslaved to sin. You know, when I'm outside of that structure, I can't even be me because all I can do is sin. When I'm in that structure, I'm free to be who God made me to be, to be who I actually am. That is freedom. It says that God tested them. This is not a trick test. Notice it says that whole bit about fighting wars, about learning to fight wars. God's tests are designed to grow us. When you go to the gym and you lift weights, every time you pick up a weight, you're testing your muscles. It's that kind of test. It's a test test for the sake of growth. It's to build you, to make you stronger. That is what God does when he tests us. The goal is Christ-likeness. And the only way you get there is reps of repentance. Reps of seeing that Jesus is the only way that you can get there. You are not good enough. You need a king. You are not strong enough. You need a king. You are not capable of doing what Jesus has to do in your life. Listen, the entire book of Judges is going to be this message. Don't miss it. This is what humans resort to when they go kingless. And it is a nightmare. If your life is kingless, or if you've accepted the true king, but you're kind of ignoring that fact at the moment, I want you to know that you're headed for brick walls. You're in a sin cycle. You're headed for hard things. And God doesn't rescue us from consequences. But the only way that you get out of that and you live in freedom is if you reestablish who is the king in your life. So stick with me. We're going to be in Judges for a minute. But I want you to see and learn from the book of Judges the way that you don't have to live. All you have to do is accept the king. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.